Hello, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Singley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we're also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're chatting with my law partner, Rick Jeffries. Rick is a trial lawyer with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska, and a certified information privacy professional. Try saying that five times fast. Rick's practice focuses on technology, information security, and privacy law. And today, Rick is going to visit with us about a recent security incident at a city water plant in Florida and what lessons employers can learn from this to prepare themselves to avoid cyber attacks. Rick, welcome back to the program. How are you? Spanning the globe from 50 feet away, it's great to be back. (laughs) So you told me the other day about this hack at a city water plant in Florida that had some lessons for employers. What do we know about the hack? So... On the surface, it doesn't sound like something that would really get to employment law, but I think there are some things that employers can learn about their employees and technology. Our story begins in Oldsmar, Florida, a pleasant town, I am sure, a population about 13,000 people, and they have their own municipal water plant. And one of the things that's used to treat water in many municipalities is a compound called sodium hydroxide. You would know that better as lye. Now, That sounds horrifying that lye is put into your drinking water, but you may also know, if you remember your high school chemistry, that sometimes the pH of water needs to be adjusted a little bit, and you can use lye to do that in obviously very small amounts. In very large amounts, it's caustic and harmful and poisonous. And hackers got into this water plant, and they dialed up the sodium hydroxide machines to dangerous levels and threatened to put dangerous levels of lye into the municipal water supply. Fortunately, somebody caught it before it got too far and the water didn't get out into circulation. No one was harmed. The crime was foiled. But it was apparently alarming for a while there. So maybe it's just the tone of your voice, but this sounds really scary. Is our critical infrastructure under some kind of coordinated cyber attack? What do you think is really going on here? Well, sounding scary is kind of my marketing strategy, but this does not bear the mark of master criminals. The scariest thing about this was how totally exposed and unprepared the city appears to be based on the popular and technical press reports about what happened. The good news and the bad news about this is a reasonably well-educated middle schooler could have pulled this off. If you asked me to design a system that had the maximum chance of being interfered with by even small-time, poorly equipped hackers, I don't know that I could have designed something better for you. This was really in bad shape, and almost none of the things that you would expect to protect an industrial process like this, where that is a life safety issue, none of that stuff was in place. According to the technical press, there was a remote access computer that ran these systems. It was running Windows 7. As you probably know, Windows 7 is out of date. Windows, Microsoft has said they will no longer update it, even for security purposes. The city had recently installed on that outdated operating system a new remote access system, but they left the old one in place. And not only was the old remote access system out of date, but it had one set of credentials that literally everybody who worked for the water plant shared. As you know, 
when you share passwords, passwords get written down. They get passed to the wrong people. They almost never are changed when somebody leaves. And they don't promote accountability because if you can do something bad on a password where there's lots of people who log in with it, then nobody's actions are ever traceable. In addition to all of that, the computer that was compromised was connected directly to the internet without any kind of firewall or network access control that you'd find in any kind of reasonable business environment. I mean, this might be on the level of something that you might find in your home, just a, a cable into the wall connected directly to the computer. So the town committed just about every cardinal sin of information security that you can commit. They did almost nothing right. It's no surprise at all that they got hacked, and it's fortunate that the damage was not worse. Okay, so what's all this got to do with employers who don't run water plants? Okay, so let's start with the idea that not everything is a life safety system. And certainly we can agree, for example, that nuclear power plants do not need to be connected to the internet. And there's a pretty good argument that water plants do not need to be connected to the internet. But what is being described in the technical press has all the earmarks of being rigged by employees who may be very good at running water plants, but have absolutely no training in or experience in security. My hypothesis, and this has not been borne out yet in the press, this is me speculating, and I want you know, so this is my opinion, but it doesn't look like anybody with any kind of serious tech background was involved in setting up the remote access. I think this is all done with the best of intentions. It's a small community. They probably don't have a vast IT budget. And we've always seen technology as a way to lighten our workload, to, you know, to do the repetitive, time-consuming, boring tasks. I and mean, from the time the Jetsons had a robot made forward, we've always imagined technology is going to make things easier for us, right? So I'm sure this starts with the water plant guys not wanting to get out of bed and drive down to the plant at 2.30 in the morning to address some simple warning light. So they wanted a way to access it remotely. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to want. And until it caused a big incident and a national scandal or a national embarrassment, I bet it saved them a lot of time and money. History teaches us that employees will find opportunities to automate their tasks. And it's cynical to say, well, they're just, you know, I mean, they'll spend a lot of energy to be lazy. That's not it. Technology is in this precarious place. It's in this sort of uncanny valley. And I think it's going to be there for a long time, where it's way easier to implement something that works than it is to implement something that works and is secure. And software is readily available on the internet, often for free. You can get, you know, go to my PC and get these remote access tools. You can download all sorts of stuff and put it on your computer and you can do it for free. And employees who want to make their lives a little bit easier are going to find tools that work for them and they're going to try and rig them up. That doesn't make them bad people, they're, but they're like toddlers who find a box of dynamite. They can do a ton of damage out of well-meaning curiosity. And sometimes employees don't anticipate the unintended consequences of their actions. Sometimes software collects data in a way that isn't appropriate for what they're doing. Sometimes information gets moved out of your secure environment and into some consumer-grade environment where it's not secure. We see this all the time with Dropbox. Employees move a whole bunch of their work into their own personal Dropbox account so they can work on something outside the secure environment of their employer, you know, maybe at home, and then they lose that computer that's got the Dropbox account on it that isn't secured by the enterprise. 
and that computer is you know uh, is lost and the data on it is lost and now we've got a corporate security problem that we didn't anticipate so that's an example and even the things that seem innocuous to the employee at the time might have bad consequences sometimes even well built tools can create an attack surface the size of the internet and anytime that you connect something to the internet now you've invited the whole world to take a whack at you whether that's middle schoolers or whether that's chinese state actors as soon as you connect to the internet all of them have a chance to take a look at you and have you prepared for that. And the last thing I, I guess I would observe on this is that your IT team can't patch what it doesn't know about. In the last few years, we've learned that one of an IT department's most important jobs is to get patches applied to the software that they've deployed as soon as they can, because that those patches often address vulnerabilities. So if one of your employees has installed free tool 1.0, which is full of vulnerabilities, your IT guys may not know about it. And so they may not be in a position to apply the patches from free tool 1.2 that cure those vulnerabilities because they simply don't know that it's there. And so I think the, the lesson is you can't let your employees rig up tools without some broader participation from the enterprise and particularly from the security parts, uh, the security oriented parts of your enterprise. So obviously, employer control is going to be important in this context. But are you saying employees should never be allowed to download software or never build their own tools to help them do their jobs more easily? I don't think they should do it unsupervised. But I think the smart employers are going to think of it as more nuanced than that. Generally speaking, the rule should be that the deployed environment that employees work in should be locked down. There are any number of reasons not to let your employees install their own software on their work machines. The simplest reason is that it makes it a lot harder for malware to get a hold of a machine if the person operating it has no privileges to install new software, because usually malware invokes that, hey, do you want to install this process? And if the user doesn't have those privileges, they literally can't do it. But sometimes even legitimate software will break some other process or damage some other aspect of security without intending to, which is why you, you want your IT guys to test things and make sure that they work in the environment that they've already deployed rather than let your employees just kind of run wild at the, at the app store. On the other hand, over time, your employees will become your best experts on how to do the work. If you tell them, this is what we are giving you for your job and then you just walk away and you won't hear anything else, you're at risk of alienating the best of them, the ones that want to create more value and be more efficient and use fewer resources, including time, and, and you'll miss opportunities to innovate. So you can't just ignore your employees, or, or at least you shouldn't. Smart employers give their workers a voice in the tools they use. Our firm, for example, has a short list of power users who will test new things before they're added to our systems because power users can explore the upside of a potential new technology or a new application, and they're fault tolerant. They won't blow a gasket or panic the first time they see an error message. But even less sophisticated employees should be heard because while they may not know the difference between ROM and RAM, they do know that X task seems to have a lot of steps that need to be done repetitively, and they hate it. And when they point something like that out to you, maybe there's an opportunity to innovate, automate, find a tool that helps them. I think, Tara, the most attractive employers will see provisioning their employees with, with software and other tools as a continuous dialogue. The best IT people recognize that their job is to make the tech run for the non-technical people 
And everybody else's job is to make the company run. Our IT guy, Matt, says, I get paid because you get paid, which is a really healthy attitude, right? He says that the technology is here to serve the business and not the other way around. I'm fond of quoting productivity expert David Allen. He's the author of the book, Getting Things Done. And, and Alan talks about using tools that you love. If you have a brand of pens or paper that where you just love the feel, you're more likely to pick them up and make notes when the, when the time comes. And I think the same thing applies to tech, which is why Apple is one of the richest corporations on the planet, because people love the tools that Apple creates. There may be things that you can't do, that your enterprise can't you know, necessarily allow. To use the earlier example, maybe you can't allow remote access to the nuclear power plant and let people work in their jammies and let this, you know, let this thing sort of operate with nobody on site. But most of the time, engaging with your employees, investing some time and energy in working together on how to optimize that deployed environment will allow you to improve your systems, will allow you to make your employees more productive, and will keep your security in a place where you want it as opposed to letting your employees download things, create a handyman special special situation like we saw in Florida, and with the consequences that, in this case, were narrowly avoided, but sometimes are not avoided. All good points. Well, Rick, this has been a fascinating discussion on employees and technology, the Jetsons and nuclear power plants and everything in between. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to connect with Rick or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, or you can also sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.